I had to just go in the kitchen drawer, found some extremely old microwavable nose wax and um, whacked my nostrils. So now I have a slight sniffle because, of course, the hairs in your nose are there for a reason. Hello, welcome to the Real Work Podcast with me, Fleur Emery. Unedited conversations with women who are changing up the world of work. Extraordinary women who are founders, thought leaders or trailblazers here to inspire and inform your idea of what's possible for you. We can't laugh in this one because it's serious. <clears throat> Get your straight face on. <clears throat> so um, I think Seema Kumar is a serial entrepreneur. She's sort of cruised through the upper levels of various industries, including fashion, TV, film, Hollywood level, and she's also a yoga teacher, and she's also CEO of The Other Box, which is um, a business she founded with um, Roshni and Leia, and it's an education platform to do with diversity. It's very serious. For this podcast, you know, I actually did um, a lot of homework. I was so nervous about it, Buckers. You did. You did. You had... You had papers that you were like rifling through out. halfway through. I, got, I stapled them. I got staples off from Amazon. You were quoting and, people. Uh, I was. I was. <laughs> but um, because all of that stuff, you know, we, we talked about call out culture, and it's something that I've observed in the last year, being on social media, and have just not really felt cool about. And she. Mm has some really strong opinions on it and it really helped me to kind of clarify my opinions but you know the caveat is I'm so not comfortable in that area of conversation and the only reason I dived in is because her career and life is so fascinating I just relished the chance to have a conversation with her but um (laughs) there's probably loads of it I haven't listened to it back (laughs) a bit like I think if I did, I might be nervous about it running. I don't know. It's quite it's quite a scary topic to tackle because it's so serious. But we got some gags in. Yeah, I found it quite difficult listening back to me at the end of the podcast because I was just so uncool. Did you grovel? So uncool. We were just like, oh, my God, that was amazing. <laughs> yeah, my God, I just love you. Oh, my God, you're so cool. I really love you. Yeah. (laughs) She has that effect on people though. That's one of the interesting things. Seema is sage like. She's kind of has this the neutrality of a Tai Chi master, which draws people in like a black hole until you've passed the eventuality and you can't turn back. Yeah. Yeah, I came off that recording feeling cleansed. Did you? Yeah, I did. Was that the celery? She's yeah, very she's, pro celery. She's influenced me. I am now I'm now guzzling celery juice in the mornings. <laughs> <laughs> I think she influences everyone. It's um yeah, it was a great conversation. So let's um let's dive in and see what we did with such a um a full-on subject. <laughs> this is a scoop seamer because you don't really speak. 
Yeah, this is, you know, this is a testament to that I actually um, play favorites. Because I, <laughs> I get asked to do this stuff all the time. And I never do. I was I like, oh, that. thanks so much for that. I will, you know, to me, say it. Yeah. It doesn't matter if you don't mean it. I don't mind. Well, I didn't say you are my favorite. No, 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 I, 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 I know you do, but that's Straight like, I remember what I was saying earlier before we started recording that I'm not easily influenced. I have favorites and you know, your IG and the way you conduct yourself is definitely a favorite of mine. Great. Well, my goal is just for you to actually say it, recording on camera. Preferably. So this podcast is about women who work and earn on their own terms, right? So st people who have kind of created their own jobs and have found a way to move through the world Check. doing their own thing. Check. Yeah. <laughs> How did that, tell us where you're born. I was born in a little town called Ba uh, in Western Fiji in the South Pacific. I've never, I've even, I've never been to Asia. That's just unimaginably exotic for me. Was it exotic? Was it, was it, were you free and like running around on the sand with no shoes on and eating coconuts? Yeah, exactly that. E exactly that. So, um, you know, I spent almost 25 years working as a fashion stylist. And the big joke was that for the first four years of my life, I was either naked on the bottom or naked on the top. So I either had on white bloomers and no top, or I had on a top and nothing on the bottom. And then I ended up extracting quite large sums of money from people paying me to dress them for two decades. <laughs> Yeah, um, but your mom and dad weren't Fijians, native. No, Fijians. we're um, my great grandparents are from India, so I, I have information about my mom's family. They're from northern India, from Rajasthan. My dad, no idea. Could be from the south, could be from the north. I'm, we don't. There's no records of it. So I have Indian heritage and and Fijian Indian. And um, when did you? And then you lived in Canada. Yeah. Um, so it just was my 46 year anniversary of moving to Canada on the 15th of February. And we were just speaking to my mom about this and, you know, what were we wearing? And uh, we left Fiji in, you know, Fiji clothes, like bare legs, probably a little dress. My mom was wearing a sari and we had family waiting for us in Canada with snowsuits. And I remember um, being put into this snowsuit and like the life I led that was really free and had a lot of movement. And, you know, and it wasn't one of those really posh snowsuits. Like these are immigrant snowsuits. Like they come from the stores that immigrants can afford to shop at. Right. And so you, what you do is when you put the hood on, I turned my head and the whole world went black. <laughs> and I was like, where's my palm trees and coconuts? Yeah, it was wild. And you're weirdly British. There's something British about you as well. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I always say, you know, people are like, describe yourself in like one, like quick sentence. And I'm like, I'm an Island girl with an English heart. I mean, that's probably because I have a lot of internalized, um, oppression from my colonizers. <laughs> so yeah. So you identify with us as a, yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's all, that's all I know. It's, um, I went from Fiji, which was the British colony, to living in a province in Canada called British Columbia. 
so Britain's a been a big part of um, my upbringing, you know, which I never questioned until like very recently. How did you get your job, first jobs in fashion? Like, how did that happen? Oh, this is a good story. Okay. So my very first fashion job was a retail job and it was this company called Fairweather. I don't know if it's still around, but when it was around, I loved it because they had, um, the French designer, Daniel Hector, and he would just make this like array of sweatshirts in every color. And, you know, every girl in high school wanted a Daniel Hector sweatshirt. So what happened is I went to, I came to England. I was in London in 1987 and I overstayed. I don't know like how my parents agreed to do this. I started school pretty much in October when the, when the school term started in early September after Labor Day. So I was already a month late and, you know, had this beautiful three month summer in London. My cousin got married, came back completely entitled, but I didn't know it. I refer to this phase as being an accidental asshole. So I didn't know it and I would be sleeping in and, you know, like rocked up to school a month and a half late. Like the teachers are like, where have you been? And I was like, oh, I've been in London on summer holiday, not realizing it, answering their question, right? So my mom walks into my room one day and she says, Seema, this is unacceptable. Like, who do you think you are? She goes, get your clothes on. We're going to the mall and you are getting a job. And I was like, okay, first let me type up a resume. I have no work experience, right? Because I'm 17 years old. And so I type up a resume and she goes, so this isn't about getting a job that you like. She goes, this is about getting a job. And she goes, this is the reality of the world. You have to go to all of these stores and give your resume. And I was like, no, 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 no. That doesn't appeal to me. And I was like, I'm going to go to this store and this store and this store because I like those stores. And that's where I'm going to give my resume. She goes, okay, that's fine. She goes, oh, you'll see the reality check. We'll see what's happening. So I walk into Fairweather first and I said, hello. You know, so my first name, I should let you know for storytelling purposes is Susanna. Seema's my middle name. So I was like, hi, I'm Susanna and I'm looking for a job. And I, is there somebody, you know, is there a manager around that I can give this resume to? The girl takes it and she's, you know, full-time employee and she takes it into the back and then out comes this very tall woman named Connie, very chic. She basically looks like Inez de la Frassange. And um, she comes out and she's like, hi, I'm Connie. And I said, hi, I'm Susanna. She goes, have you ever worked before? And I was like, no, I'm looking for my first job. She goes, great, come into the back room with me. I'll interview you right now. So I go and I said, my mom's waiting for me outside. Can I just go tell her that I'm going for an interview? So I go back to my mom and I said, I have an interview. And she goes, when? I was like, right now. So you can go to the food fair or food court and I'll see you in a bit, right? <laughs> and she was like, really? And I was like, yeah, two hours later, she's waiting outside. And I was like, okay, I got a job. What, sh what should we do now? That's how I got my first job. And, um, and I never treated it like a sales job because there was commission and I was in high school. I, I didn't know that there was a thing called styling, which is what I ended up doing, but I would style people. So they'd come in and they'd be looking for something 
And I was like, well, like, what kind of car do you drive? Like, how do you open your door handle? Is it a truck? Is it a Jeep? Is it like, you know, sedan? What is it? People were like, why is that? And I was like, you know, it depends on, do you put your car, do you put it, do you have kids? Do you put it in the passenger seat? Do you throw it in the back seat? And this is how I'd sell handbags. And just a conversation, they're like, I want to try on other things. So I just build them a whole new wardrobe. And even though I worked part-time, I consistently had the highest sales every week because I was selling outfits that weren't returned and they were not returned, I think, because of an experience that was a bit more personal. I didn't know what I was doing. I was just being myself. But that and really how many years between that meeting um, that woman, were you styling, you know, famous people who we see in magazines? Um, I started styling accidentally when I was 21 because I dated a boy in a band who was a musician who ended up becoming a rock star, right? Who, so it's um, Marcus is, yeah, yeah, there's no way you can get it out of her. It's like trying to get something out of a clam. Yeah. It's no way. It can be shut and tall, but that clam is never opening. The so are, you can't just, Google it, nothing. So, Could we call him Bon Jovi, just, you know, for storytelling purposes? Absolutely not. Uh, absolutely not. I was never a Bon Jovi fan. I say this because it was from the grunge era, like so I'm in the Pacific Northwest and they're still alive. Like a lot of people didn't make it out, right? But he's alive and thriving. And he's a rock Okay, just getting the data. Um, so, but that was only for, for just for help. You know, I was working in a clothing store going to university and it was a really hip store. There was you know, it was in a part of Vancouver that had a lot of artists and musicians, and there was a coffee shop well before coffee shops were in stores. And um, so there was like music producers, record label dudes, musicians, artists, writers, painters, all coming in. And um, when they needed a video, I had an arsenal of really good looking girlfriends. And uh, people tended to like the way I dressed. And so they asked me if I could you know, sort out their video and dress them. So I was like, sure. And then in Canada, they won um, like a music video of the year award on the channel called uh, Much Music. And then I had all these production companies from Toronto call say, hey, can you do, uh, can you do the video for this artist? The do was, you know, built in that they assumed I knew what that meant. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> What does do a video mean? And, you know, because I didn't realize I was producing, styling, casting, anything. And then there was like people who would come in who, and I'd be, do you, so do you know any Steadicam operators? Like, and people were like, yeah, I, I could probably call in some stuff. I think I know a Steadicam operator. I was like, do you think they'd be able to like work on a long weekend and not hang out with their son and go fishing? And I would, because I was so in love, right? I was so, and so enthusiastic about these people and uh, these people being the boyfriend I had in his band. I'd just be, what I can do is when they get signed, you can get a paid job on the next video. I have no authority to say these things. But I said it. And they said yes, and then they had a good time, and then they did get, you know, signed, and they did get hired for the next one. Yeah, so it was, 
I always think of things like a converse. I would say it's just a conversation. It's not a crucifixion. You know, I say that as a Catholic person, you know, I was brought up Catholic. My dad is like, everything was a crucifixion. You know, you, you got the look, but I was like, let's just have a conversation. Let's explore. And I didn't know that I was being, um, you know, an innovator or disruptive or anything. I was just being myself. I didn't know anything else. And I've never really, you know, my older brother said to me a while ago, he told me, he goes, oh, for years, I was so annoyed by you. And he was like, does she wake up in the morning and think like, oh my God, like, how am I going to buck the status quo? And then he goes, until one day I realized you actually don't even consider the status quo. Like you're not even aware of it. And what you're describing, that dynamic between young um, creatives and artists in you know, then functioning within an industry that makes money. That dynamic's been around for a long time, but it's just become a bit more jaded in the technical era, hasn't it? When everyone can share information. Back in that, when you were doing it, when things were a bit more analog, it was still like the last remnants of quite an innocent time, wasn't it? When... Yeah, it was, you know, what happens is the lack of social media meant that you you didn't, it wasn't people were saying, how did you do this? Like, what, like, how did you cross all these barriers? And it wasn't that complicated. I didn't realize there was a barrier because moving through the world as a brown woman with no social media, no mobile phones, um, your, your reality was your actual physical reality that you experienced. So if you wanted certain things, you had to send a fax, then you talked on the phone or you, you know, worked together physically. Um, and because I didn't know any better, it wasn't even part of my consciousness. Now that's not to say that I didn't have, that I wasn't aware that something was there. It's a subconscious thing. You're always aware that you're the one person who looks really different or that you're a woman and then an extra layer of that you are not a white woman. So I don't say a woman of color anymore because it still centers whiteness, right? It's just like, I'm just not a white woman. Non-whites do as well, saying non-whites because that centers whiteness, right? Yeah. It's like, I mean, it all centers whiteness. There's people, but the thing is, you know, the music industry did not have women who looked like me at the time that I was working in the music industry. But, you know, I had access because of who I was dating at the time. And then when that relationship packed up, it was, there was social proof. And I really connect to artists, which is storytellers and musicians, especially because they're writing their own stories more so than actors. I ended up working with quite a few actors as well, but you ended up on the red carpet tweaking and zhizhing. Yeah, I was award show season till 2014. I was just- We must have been the only brown woman for that Pretty point. much, yeah, pretty much, yeah. And did you feel that as you were there? Like, did, you, did it feel- Oh, it was like blatantly, you're reminded of it. You have publicists and managers and handlers turn around and like give you stuff to hold um, of other people because they think that you're, you must be part of the event staff. And then people rushing in going, oh my God, like 
that is so-and-so stylist. Please do not treat her that way. And I always just took it because I knew what was going on, but my self-worth isn't rooted in someone else's behavior of me. So, you know, I would bypass that and go, okay, you need me to hold something. That's what's going on here. You obviously need something to be held. Now, the way you're going about it is pretty rude, but your your behavior equation of being rude is a reflection of you. It doesn't like it doesn't have anything to do with me. So that's um like that old fashioned saying, you shame yourself, you don't shame me. Exactly. And were most of the women that you were, was it all women that you started? Actually, it was predominantly men. Was it? Yeah. I loved menswear. You know, we want to tell you something, to tell us something. You know, like we're just down here on planet Earth. You know, we, we're interested in the names. You know that, Seema. Go on, drop a couple. None. Zip. Silent Seema. It's, um, we need to just be grateful that you're speaking at all because on your Instagram, you don't even speak. We just have all, Buckers was like before, she's like saying, Where's, where's, is she American? It's just like, we don't even know. She doesn't speak. Is that an actual choice? Did you choose to do that? Uh, yeah, because I get paid to talk all day. So my output is a lot, you know, um, the, the work that I do in any facet, whether it's in film, whether it's with the other box, whether it's with my company, Seema Says, that name came about because I'd be sitting in meetings and other people would be like, well, Seema says, Seema says, Seema says. I was like, I think that's my brand name is Seema says. So, um, you know, for me, social media is a way to be open, but I'm also very private. And uh, I don't so much subscribe to introvert and extrovert anymore. I'm pretty masterful at making that switch and so my professional self has to be quite extroverted because my professional self leads and i'm very seldom in a position where i'm uh, learning and recently i found myself in that position i love it but um otherwise i'm always speaking and by the end of the day i'm just sick and tired of the sound of my own voice you know and also you just, you found your rhythm. Like it, that's what we do on social media, isn't it? I haven't been there on, on there very long and it took me quite a while to find out what was sustainable and comfortable, you know, what, what was the match. And you know, on Instagram it works because it's a predominantly silent platform. And, um, you know, unless you're captioning things, people can't hear you anyway. Yeah, like 80% of people are watching with it on silent, which is a shame because I've, take a lot of trouble choosing my quirky music but there you go and um what's really interesting about this is other people will know you um and will be thinking hang on so what, what are you saying seem as a stylist yeah, yeah. <laughs> what you're in fashion hang on a minute what what no she doesn't she's our um she's our guru yeah well i mean a lot of people that i coach are former um, clients that I used to address. So they won't be surprised, but I don't advertise it. My whole thing is, um, so I had opportunities close to the end of my styling career to do TV shows, which I did a few. And I noticed that everybody wanted me to be something else. And, um, you know, they wanted to ramp up, a, uh, what, you know, like provocative, controversial, 
rude and I am not a rude person. I am known to say some snippy things, but they're not, um, they're not to be rude. They're because I'm direct and speak my mind. But when you want to make a 60 minute show or a 30 minute show, and you want me to be snippy for 27 minutes of that, that's actually not who I am. I'm like a very nice person. You know, I have a great deal of tolerance and patience. And it's just, um, what I do is I let people self-manage, right? So if I give you 500 meters of rope and you decide to go to 499 of it in the first week of knowing me, probably week two, we won't know each other. But if you, you know, and that's like, it's up to you to negotiate that. And I make those decisions quickly because my other side where I, it's, you know, I don't say anything. I'm very okay with my own company and I actually need a lot of time by myself and I need a lot of personal and physical space in order to execute being the person who's always doing the talking at the level that I do. So what you're talking about is self-awareness. Yeah. And in fact, it's the practice of yoga in its truest sense, right? Yeah. This is you're talking about yoga. And so even as a stylist, your approach to what you were doing was a yoga approach and that's what created the momentum in your career. That's what made you good at it. This sense of self-awareness, a slight sense of detachment, which creates a kind of enigmatic draw from other people and a refusal to get drawn into other people's um, sort of drama. Yeah, exactly that, you know, I always say I wasn't the best stylist. I didn't obsess about who's wearing what for months in advance. I was a little bit of a last minute, like, let's, let's pull something out. Like, what do you like? And uh, because I had so much other life to live, right? But the experience that you were giving them. And that's what the feedback I had, even from a director that I worked with, he was like, something happens with you in fittings. There's something that happens and people are like, there's some kind of weird therapy that happens. Um, and that was just because I found a system where especially people in the spotlight love to talk about themselves. So I used to ask them questions about themselves that had nothing to do with the TV show, the album or the movie that they were promoting, mostly because I'd never seen it. So I worked in this field or I wouldn't listen to the album. I didn't know the album. Um, and this is after, you know, clients were beyond boyfriends and friends, right? They were actual clients um, that I didn't know. I, I hadn't watched their movie and, you know, I had publicists and managers going, Seema, make sure you take time out to watch this movie. And I was like, well, I'm not being hired as a moviegoer. I'm being hired as a stylist. Like, I just need to know them. And, and I think that in interaction and the intimacy and the interest in them um is it wasn't so much that people loved what i dressed them in it was that they what the way that they felt during the exchange 
resonated and then they were they wanted that feeling so then i ended up getting regular clients because the feeling was one that was quite human i'm not i was never that loud person on set that was bellowing from the backgrounds going gorgeous oh my god i'm like well okay great you're dressed go do your thing i'll sit here and read a book and i was like call me if you need anything i keep an eye on what was happening and that relationship, that connection is what you reproduce in all areas of your work. So you're, the way you have actually made money and supported your life over the years is in all different industries. But that principle is the same. You've reproduced that in different, type, different fora. Right? Yeah, I'd say that's exactly correct. So every, you know, people when I see people acting out, and I don't mean being disruptive, I just mean, you know, sometimes people act out because they're funny or, but it's just something that's a little bit of a pattern interruption with what's happening. Uh, sometimes, you know, it's because they want attention or we're all going for the same thing, which is love and acceptance. Every single human being is going for love and acceptance. Now, how we go about doing that, that behavior equation depends on our childhood, our social conditioning, our experiences at school, our, you know, relationships, platonic, intimate relationships, like all of these things inform that. And I think being born in a country where I was an outsider. So Fiji belongs to native Fijians. They're black people. And I like, you know, my family was transplanted there by white people. So we were both the oppressed and the oppressor because we had more privilege than the natives. They're in servitude. Yes. Yeah. They were indentured laborers. I eat slaves, <laughs> you know? And so then when I go to India, what happens is, um, you know, people really love the way I look in India because I'm fair skinned and there's colorism in India, but then they find out that I'm from Fiji and then I'm knocked down a few notches because that means I come from slave ancestry. So having this in my experience of life and knowing it because i sought out the information quite early um i think gave me a sense of self of i need to know who i am so i had a strong identity of self which meant when i entered rooms um sometimes you know you you could tell that it wasn't the safest feeling especially when you're in productions or going to production meetings or um you know, Hollywood is cutthroat. Like I definitely was not the, didn't look like everybody else there. Um, but I had a strong sense of self. And one of the things that has worked for me, and it's also not worked for me. So the not worked for me has led to things working for me. So this sense of self of this is who I am. And because I was always othered, I we like when I filled in, forms i always had to put like ethnicity other because you could at, there was many years when you were fijian even if you were born in fiji you couldn't put that you were fijian unless you were native fijian and then i was in the pacific islander because that meant something else so i was constantly ticking the other box all my life which is what you named your most recent business yes 
I mean, that's how I found the founders, Leah and Roshni of The Other Box. It's because I was like, what is this company? Because I have for my whole life been The Other Box. And, um, you know, that led to them being clients that I used to consult to them approaching me to be their co-founder and CEO. So now we run the the business as three partners. And the business of The Other Box is to educate and inform um, on matters of diversity. Yeah, you know, um, the world is already diverse. So we have, there's two really core parts of the the, the other box. One is a community of 4,000 creatives that continues to grow. And it's a place where people can share um, opportunities, experiences, anybody who's felt othered from the mainstream narrative. And then there's a B2B business, which is our bread and butter. And we uh, educate a lot of companies. It can be from tech companies to uh, publishing to fintech. It could be, we have a lot of fashion clients about, you know, the basic right thing of just don't be racist. Because, you know, the thing is, especially in a world that is a white supremacist world, it's not like, oh, I'm not racist. The question is, how racist are you? So it's an awareness that, thing. 12-step program, it would be, um, step one would be admitted that I was a yeah. racist. I I have racism, you know? Yeah. So when pe- white people say to me, I'm not racist, I was like, I hate to break it to you, you are racist. Are we stop at, you know, we as in white, white folk, are we I'm saying that less now? No, no, people are saying it like, no, that's an echo chamber. If you're around people who are saying it less, it's because they're doing the work, but that that's less than 1% of the population. That's pretty bad, even after recent events. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like a trend. It's kind of like, you know, the, um, think of it like the Balenciaga motorcycle bag. Everybody wanted one and then they got one and then they chucked it aside. Yeah, the Fendi baguette. It's like, you know, look at me. I'm walking down the street with my Fendi baguette clutched under my arm like rare breed, rare, rare, endangered species. Yeah. Fendi baguette with like chinchilla yeah. nostril or something and on it. Then it gets chucked crossed. at the back of the wardrobe. I mean, I just was doing a wardrobe haul this weekend, you know, because I was doing kind of house admin chores and I found my Fendi baguette from night. 19- 1998 what fabric um it's beaded mm. have you got a spy bag no that that whole thing I yeah i'm glad we i'm glad we've moved on from that let's come back out let's um come not dip back into fashion because what you're saying is so interesting on um the intersection of social media and the work that the other box does it's quite a murky area, isn't it? Because social media lends itself so easily to to um, tokenism and crazes, and like the. Can we talk about the black square on Black Lives Matter? Oh yeah, the black square. There, like you know that that's a really great example of intention o- over impact, right? So when you're really doing the work, you have to prioritize impact over intention, but most people uh, roll it out, myself included. So this is, I make mistakes all the time. So I'm not uh, excluding myself from this very human thing. Um, You know, you go like, oh, my intention was to, you know, do something. But what happens 
is when you when you don't really look into it and then you just jump on a bandwagon it actually does more harm because what that did is it was meant to for the music industry first of all it was a music industry thing and um it was originated i believe by two black women in the music industry to kind of silence um you know just the voices and elevate black voices but when everybody kind of co-opted it so when it did the total opposite because when you searched the hashtag the only thing that came up was millions and millions of black squares which really was a blackout it was interesting how much social pressure was exerted to conform and it felt like that was the beginning of um a new normal where on social media there's a kind of thing of like unless you're speaking up on this you don't care unless you're angry you're not paying attention you know unless unless you're listening there's a kind of there's quite a few things now for example um the conservative governments respond to the pan response to the pandemic um the school meals crisis um you know um refugee refugees in um france there's there's things like that that unless you're talking about it even if you have a flower arranging site unless you're talking about it you don't care i think what i'm talking about is um the culture of moral outrage yeah that's there's two different things so if you are prone to peer pressure which most of us are um then that's an added layer of problem for you right i i personally think if you know what you're up to then you really the pressure you're feeling is your own there's a guilt in your own mind that you should be doing something and you're not that, do you see what she's doing do you see what Seema does <laughs> you're feeling pressure it's on you keep your house in order <laughs> and stop the people pressurizing you stop yourself feeling the pressure that's it that's it in a nutshell right <laughs> yeah i mean we're in lockdown right like nobody can come into my house and make me feel pressure the only way somebody could make me feel pressure is if they come and you know crush my chest or try to depress my shoulders so if you don't like what they're saying stop listening yeah you know and then th then the pressure that you're feeling is you're you're realizing that you're choosing to silence um important conversations and ignorance is a choice and you're choosing that therefore you are part of the problem that's the pressure you're feeling there's um the conversation kind of goes wider than this because it goes into um the the sort of areas of when collect collective collective moral outrage when to, when we have when we turn on people so what originated in um people being blacklisted in industries now we can we come together and we can cancel people we can silence people we deplatform people with a collective sense of moral outrage that's something that's kind of where that point leads to isn't it yeah there's that's again it's it's a much deeper and complex issue so if you look at what's called cancel culture now it was already happening before social media that's what happens when as a woman you lose a job because somebody doesn't 
like what you said. You've been effectively that you're, you're canceled, right? Um, or all of a sudden, you know, you are known for doing a, a function and there's the, the tide swings against you. So that could be, you know, the patriarchy canceling women. Or in um, your old industry, you know, casting directors, just give, putting the word around that someone doesn't get hired. Exactly. You know, um, it's, it's what happened um, to Catherine Heigl. She's difficult to work with. Um, so maybe she was going through a difficult time or maybe she upheld a boundary um, or even if she was difficult to work with, there's a lot of other people who are difficult to work with that didn't get canceled and she became pretty unemployable for a long time. And so that's already been happening. It's just now happening on social media. And I, so there's, you know, for me, there's cancel, like there's calling out people. So people get called out and then canceled. Um, there's calling in people, which I think for me is a one-to-one -one. you DM somebody and you say, Hey, this thing was problematic. And, um, you know, is, can you relook at that? And then there's something that I'm really into, which is calling it forward. This is very unpopular, especially amongst activists. And I understand their outrage at calling it forward as well, because a lot of people are canceling people in um, their work of white supremacy because it's around uh, consequences and accountability, right? It's just now playing out on a very public platform. So we have to make sure that we're not conflating the way people are canceled and called out with the fact that they should be held accountable and pay, like have consequences to their actions. The reason, the re so going back to that, the reason it happens, if we talk about what you said earlier, when, when I said, you know, we feel pressure and it's like, well, what, why? why? What is that about you? That's your consciousness speaking. Yes. So in terms of moral outrage, moral outrage fulfills a, a function, a historic function in society. It backs up our relationships. It gives us authority. It deflects attention away from our, um, you know, moral transgressions. You know, it, so it has a function. It pays us off. Hello, chums. I know, a little bit of an abrupt stop there. But um, as you can imagine, Seema was such an interesting interviewee that Buckers and I got somewhat carried away. And um, yes, it goes on and on. So we split it into two and you can take a break. On the next section, it gets quite spicy. Seema gives her view of Donald Trump. It might not be what you're expecting. And I completely drop the ball, show my own racism and get a seamless smackdown, um, which we're not editing out. It's kind of awkward, but it's kind of part of the journey, finding out who we are. I think that's kind of, it fits into her whole thing. But yeah, you can enjoy that. If you don't like me very much, I get a little, what do you call it? A little tap on the nose. Is that what you say, Buckers? Tap on the nose? Yeah, a little, yeah, a little, a little boop. Nope. Yeah, a little back down there. Back down. And also, I tried to veer off, didn't I? Yeah. I tried to style it out, and um, 
She's like, let's reverse and tell Fleur off. Correct you before we move on. So that happens. And we talk Obama. We talk white supremacy. Yeah. It gets to the meat and potatoes, basically, of the conversation. Hopefully, in this half, you've got to know Seema. That's the end of this week's episode of The Real Work Podcast. If you want more from me before the next episode or you'd like to learn more about real work, you can find me on Instagram and YouTube where I share experience and advice for women who want to work and earn on their own terms. My Instagram handle is at doreal.work and on YouTube it's realwork, all capitals, all one word. Please rate and review this podcast if you know how (laughs) and tell people about it. It all helps. Thank you for being here. See you next time. We finished recording. That was good, right? That went well. Yeah, that was really good. Thanks, Buckers. I couldn't have done it without you, though. We should um, we should put like a little ad or something at the end to promote your work as a podcast producer. What do you think? Really? Yeah. No, that's a bit awkward. It's like it's like it's it's your stage. It's like me coming up and like taking the microphone and saying hi, Emmy. It's a collaboration. It's right that you should get a mention. You know, you used to be on the radio. We should make a little jingle or something. <laughs> um, well, I have actually got something that I was having a little play around with a while back. But mm-hmm. yeah, but don't get excited. It's nothing fancy. You got it. Play it. Like, play it. Let's have a listen. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, yeah. All right, then. Let me find it. Okay, here it is. If you want to make a podcast that your audience will adore But the thought of making it yourself terrifies you to the core Then you know who to call Producer Buckers She knows just what to do Producer Buckers To make your podcast dreams come true She used to work in radio where she was poorly paleo A dab hand at audio Find Producer Buckers on Instagram at decibel underscore creative or click the link in the show notes. Come on, everyone. Producer Buckers, if you want to hire the best, Producer Buckers, just put it to the test. Producer Buckers, just press record and she does the rest. Producer Buckers. Yeah, um, okay, good.